0: Hello and welcome to New York Update. And today we're going to have a call in from state senate candidate from Brooklyn, Blake Morris. He's in a very exciting race because he is trying to unseat Simka Felder, the highly, highly controversial state senator who made headlines this uh, past summer by holding up the entire state budget of the state of New York in a demand that uh, yeshiva schools get special privileges and they get exempt from state requirements for education practices and standards we're going to be talking to Blake Morris who is running against him I believe a first-time candidate but another candidate who is considered with the IDC challengers to be part of a new progressive wave that is looking to unseat, not Republicans, but Democrats. Believe it or not, Simka Felder is a Democrat running in a Democratic primary. Even though he's been giving his support to Republicans, he hasn't voted for Andrea Stewart-Cousins to be the majority leader. Actually, Simka Felder is the single state senator, the lone senator, who threw the balance of power in the entire state for uh, over a year now, ever since uh, the 2016 elections, from the Democrats, who technically won, to the Republicans, who have a thirty-one thirty majority. And it's all because of simcafelder Felder. So can't wait to talk to Blake and uh, find out uh, what's going on with his race. Until he buzzes in, I'm going to read the headlines since last week. And uh, last week we spoke about the nicet, the New York State United Teachers Union endorsements came out. And a little bit controversial because... Although they did not endorse six out of the eight IDC members, they did endorse David Carlucci and Marisol Alcantara. And some people are scratching their head wondering why. An article came out in City and State that uh, had quotes from Andy Pallada. He's the president of the New York State United Teachers. And despite the fact that they did not endorse... The opponents of the IDC. They did no endorsements, which is just kind of like, hey, we're neutral in this race. He's coming out after they issued their endorsements and telling reporters that they really want to get rid of the IDC and that they're going to be actively door knocking and phone banking and canvassing against IDC members. And he specifically notes here in The article, Jeff Klein, who is the leader of the IDC, NYSET is supporting a couple of other uh, Democrats in the primary as well. But pretty interesting um, that they changed the strength of their statement and they changed the tone of their statement. Now, all of a sudden, the New York State Teachers Union, NYSET, is against the IDC and is going to actively campaign against Jeff Klein, and a couple of the other members. Also of note, Andrew Gillum, that name, who is that? That name. So he won the Democratic primary down in Florida for governor. It was a shocker. He is a uh, African-American current mayor of Tallahassee, and he's a progressive. Um, He was not polling well. So this is another example of the pollsters uh, screwing up and not calling the race. Maybe they don't have enough cell phones nowadays, or maybe they're just falling down on the job. But I'm mentioning Andrew Gillum because as the mayor of Tallahassee running for governor, he was asked on TV, what are you going to do to attract Republican voters? right? We all know Florida is not a blue state. It's not a red state, right? A toss-up state. And so here's what he said. I don't know if you could hear it, but I'll repeat it. So he was asked, what are you going to do to appeal to Republicans? The first thing he said was, well, you know, everybody's struggling now. The majority of Floridians are struggling just to make ends meet, right? So that's just a basic pocketbook issue saying, uh, you know, vote for me and I'll improve the, you know, economic situation for the middle class, for the average person. But the next thing he said was high-stakes standardized tests. Out of all subjects to bring up, he says the high-stakes tests do not tell us what uh, children know. It just tells us how well they take a test. Very interesting for him to insert that into the governor's race, and specifically when it comes to appealing to Republicans. You know, in Florida, there might be a lot of Republicans. There might also be a lot of independents that are on the fence. Very interesting that he's uh, putting this into the race. We're not seeing that enough. We're not seeing candidates talk about standardized testing enough. The corporate PACs and the special interests will spend money against you if you do that. So he's obviously not afraid of that. Uh, what else happened this week? Senator Gillibrand made the news. Uh, she came out. In favor of four of the IDC candidates, he, she endorsed Jessica Ramos, Zellner Myrie, Robert Jackson, and Alessandra Biagi. Those are the four New York City IDC challengers. And it's a little bit controversial there because Gillibrand came out pretty early in the um, race for Andrew Cuomo. And Andrew Cuomo is accused uh, as being the mastermind or the ringleader or the you know behind the scenes architect of the IDC they they wanted this breakaway group to be a, a parliamentary strategic caucus that could swing any vote uh, any direction on any party line vote but also swing the balance away from the Democrats and away from you know, a New York City-centric focus to the IDC. Kirsten Gillibrand came out with a uh, strong statement. And when she mentioned Jessica Ramos in particular, she praised her as a public school mom and the daughter of immigrants. So there is Kirsten Gillibrand finally getting off the sidelines and weighing in on the education issue of uh, public schools. And, of course, Robert Jackson, who she also endorsed, has been for decades one of the strongest voices in securing funding for needy schools around the state. He was one of the principal plaintiffs in the CFE case, the Campaign for Fiscal Equity case, that says every student in the state is entitled to a sound basic education and that's when the courts and legislature appropriated the money it was all uh, robert jackson he was in the mix very early on as one of the lead plaintiffs he's been a city councilman in harlem for over 10 years a little news item here there was a debate here in rockland county between david carlucci the incumbent state senator and julie goldberg who we interviewed here on the show and it was a half an hour debate it was pretty interesting um, and it got a little tense at times and uh, David Carlucci was his usual self, you know he sticks to the script, he, you know he has very disciplined talking points, uh, whenever he's asked a question he starts to expound on a list of things that he's accomplished and because of him <clears throat> so here's Blake Morris now and we're going to say hello to Blake, can you hear us?
1: Yeah, hi, it's Blake Morris.
0: Hi, welcome to New York Update. Jake Jacobs here, and New York City school teacher, the host. And so we have on the line, state senate candidate for the 17th district in Brooklyn, Blake Morris. So how's it going today, Blake?
1: It's doing really well. It's a hot Labor Day in the 17th senate district.
0: Great. We were talking a little bit earlier, and uh, you were nice enough to come on the podcast here. You're going to be getting the endorsement, along with all the IDC challengers, the endorsement of the New York Bats, the... State chapter of the Badass Teachers Association, who I am a member of, and um, we were talking a little bit about your endorsement, and you were uh, really diligent, I thought, in your answers to the questions on the questionnaire. We discovered that uh, you're also in the family of somebody also in working in the education space.
1: Yes, that's true. I have a wife who um, is an officer for a not-for-profit for New York City Outward Bound. They run operate eight high schools in New York City as vendors to the New York City Department of Education.
0: And I've heard about We're Bound. They give kids, a part of what they do at least, is they give kids opportunity to go out, to go out in the woods and the forest and green spaces, right, and get in touch with nature?
1: Yep, that's right. They focus on character development and experiential learning. And they are very proud of the fact that students, can actually move ahead by two to three grades within the four years of high school.
0: Wow. Right. So these are alternative programs. And so you must know uh, quite a bit, uh, just talking around the dinner table, about education and I read from your bio that you're also a public school parent.
1: Yes, my daughter is a senior at Brooklyn Tech.
0: Oh, and that's interesting, too, because that's one of New York's specialized high schools. I suppose you've been asked at this point on the campaign trail to weigh in on the specialized high school tests, or no?
1: Yes. Oh, yes, I have. It's okay. It's a, a very hot topic. <laughs>
0: Right. What was your view? Some people say that uh, there needs to be quotas set to bring the racial mixture in the specialized school more in balance with the actual mixture in the real world. There was uh, some groups uh, that want to keep things exactly as they are, and other groups that say that it needed to change but using a different mechanism. And so what was your view as a parent in the system?
1: Right. So my view as a parent and as a taxpayer and as a citizen of New York City, after consulting quite a few educators, is that we should preserve the test, but we should weight it with the cumulative average of seventh and eighth graders. So that way there's more of a diversity of academic ability that can be assessed of who would be, who's appropriate to actually attend our specialized high
0: schools. You're saying you would be in favor of diversifying the metrics so not everything was just based on this one standardized test that you would also make the students' grades a part of the consideration.
1: Exactly. We also have to take a look at the statute itself as compared to what mayoral control of the city school system. So the statute itself allows for four schools to be testing the so-called testing high schools so which is Bronx Science, Stuyvesant and Brooklyn Tech. Mm-hmm. The fourth school is LaGuardia School of Performing Arts. So it looks like there's no controversy to keep the to keep the audition requirement for LaGuardia okay. in place. So the controversy is over the three academic testing right. high schools. To to use that term.
0: Right, and they had to get permission from Albany to to put those in place. Exactly.
1: And then the city on its own took five screening high schools and converted them to testing high schools. Right. So when they converted the five screening high schools to testing high schools, they really dramatically changed the demographics Mm -hmm. of those schools. So, one of the issues regarding testing high schools is, which I don't have an answer for you today, but one of the answers might be that maybe some of those screening high schools that had got converted to testing high schools should revert back to screening high schools.
0: Right. It's a topic we could probably do a whole show on. Oh, oh I would um, think so. Especially with the new New York City Chancellor, um, it's uh, Richard Carranza, who is... Now, using a certain number of community schools to pilot a program to reserve a certain amount of seats for kids with lower test scores and lower income, because there is a a rule saying you cannot simply just uh, make a racial quota, but using those other criteria will pretty reliably make it uh, an effective, more of a balance. And there's a lot of controversy, you know, in here in the age of gentrification whether that will make some parents just up and leave the area, you know, as as we've been seeing since the 70s, where a lot of uh, city families would just get up and move to the suburbs over those years. So that's another uh, issue to keep your eye on. As it pertains to the New York Bats, the real burning questions revolve around uh, three topics, mostly the social justice issue, Questions are part of everything now, but I heard a preview of your answers and I thought that you were really taking some strong positions, some very robust positions. So, uh, the first we asked you about was uh, the charter school controversy, where uh, many charter schools uh, have been opening. We have somewhere around 250 allowed now in the state, and the controversy comes in where their admissions practices they are accused of cherry picking. They're accused of counseling out or kicking out the kids that aren't going to be the good test takers. And so your position was pretty strong. Why don't you tell us how you feel on the subject? Well,
1: my position is that I think we should minimize the budgetary allocations that the state assigns to charter schools. And whatever we can within the national law parameters, minimize the number of charter schools. And in addition, what I would like to see is that the same way the state has a requirement that charter schools only be for not-for-profit, which is not the rule in other states, by the way. In other states, charter schools can be for profit. Yes. But in New York, we do require them only to be not-for-profit, but we do not require charter school management companies to be not-for-profit. And, and what I would like to see is that the charter school management companies as well be not-for-profit, and i like to separate out the profit incentive from charter school management companies, from this process,
0: that was actually a specific question that was asked to the attorney general candidates a couple of weeks ago, on the Upper West Side. They were asked whether the attorney general candidates would, as attorney general, investigate using the charity bureau and the uh, the ability to oversee nonprofits, charter schools that did have these management fees. Kind of baked into the cake. Uh, Zephyr Teachout definitely said that she would. (laughs) The other candidates uh, had uh, mixed answers, but something that is coming to light: what you're talking about is that just because they say they're nonprofit, doesn't mean that there isn't a patronage jobs. And B, internal profit vehicles where public education money is going to these companies, these outside vendors. You know, I really appreciate that position. It seems like in your district, you have probably a whole other raging debate with the religious schools. And here in Rockland County, we have a lot of the similar issues. And um, why don't you give us your, uh, the quick version of your uh, position on the yeshiva controversy, which your district is probably ground zero for.
1: It probably is. <laughs> so, right, exactly. So I have a position, which is the position of, which is exactly how the state constitution discusses it, as interpreted by the state's highest court, which is the Court of Appeals, is that parents have an absolute right under the U.S. and and state constitution to educate their children however they see fit. So they have an absolute right to do that. And at the same time, the U.S. and the state constitution require that that the state has the right for a public purpose uh, to require minimal educational standards of the education of those students. So we have, so basically the law sets up a dynamic where parents can choose any sort of education for their children. And at the same time, the state has an absolute right to require a minimal amount of education for those students to achieve.
0: Well, and right, and I think, I think the exact language is um, equivalency, substantial equivalency. Right,
1: substantial equivalency, and the state constitution discusses a, that the state has a public interest. And establishing these standards and they should be enforced. So what happens is the standards private schools under the law in New York are referred to as non public schools. Right, so be, in non public yeah. schools, basically the state, because parents have an absolute right to to make a to make any choice they would like, for the most part, the state can't ever remove remove a charter or close a non public school for non-performance. But what they can do is they can actually suspend the payments from the public treasury to schools who are not satisfying the minimal educational requirements. And when I am a campaigning in, my, in the 17th Senate District, which includes Borough Park and Midwood and Kensington, Sunset Park, uh, Sheepshead Bay and Flatbush, but most of the yeshivas are in Borough Park and Midwood, is I am very clear and I say that that the state should definitely suspend payments to non-public schools that don't satisfy the minimal, minimal educational requirements.
0: Right, and there and there was an investigation it it, uh, it was started about 3 years ago, the Yafed, the organization that that kind of protects the identities of the whistleblowers within the schools is saying that the city has been dragging their feet on the investigation. And then we find out just about two weeks ago in an article that they really have only gotten into a couple of the schools and that maybe as many as a third or a half of the schools that were on the list to investigate wouldn't let them in. So, right, and
1: right, exactly. and I, So the law rec- talks about the superintendent of a school district. But in New York City... The mayor is the superintendent of the New York City school district.
0: Well, there's mayoral control, right? And then he appoints the chancellor.
1: Correct. So, so it's really the mayor wears another hat in this situation of being superintendent of the school system. So, when City DOE could not get access to those schools, they didn't complete the report. But it took them three years to
0: issue an right
1: to issue a report saying how incomplete their work was. Right, so I'm not exactly sure what to do. So I guess you would call it a status report of their lack of progress. Right, they waited way too long They're at the first signs of recalcitrance. Right. from these non-public schools, what the superintendent should have done, which in this case the mayor or the chancellor should have done, was to give a referral to the state superintendent's office. And because the machinery, the clockwork for this, is that the district superintendent refers non-compliance. Mm-hmm. To the state superintendent, and then the state superintendent would review what the district superintendent had um, reported, and if they had found that the reporting was accurate, in this case, non-access to non to non-public schools could have instructed the state controller's office to suspend the payments, and there are payments for Take- student transportation, for textbooks. For building maintenance and taking attendance, and there's a couple of other categories. Yeah, I think
0: technology is another one. And
1: technology is a couple other categories that the that there are public expenditures at at non-public schools, and they could have suspended the payment. When I've talked to the controller's office and the state education department, they've always said they probably could never terminate the payment, but in reality, what they're doing is they can suspend authorization of issuing of the payment okay. until the non-public school comes into compliance.
0: Okay. So that's like a technical uh, maneuver?
1: No, it's, I guess it's a technical maneuver because the legislature is the one that actually has appropriated the money, but the job of, the, of State Ed and the controller's Office is to actually enforce the law and to provide the payment. Right, and I, my suspicion—I would just want to—and my suspicion is basically, I think, if City DOE had sent that referral to the state superintendent and just a threat of a suspension of payments happened, I think the non-public schools would have had a different response.
0: Right. So, when you when you're talking about the state superintendent, do you mean the commissioner, the state? Right. Commissioner? Right. Right, okay, so right, she she has threatened, this might be even lighter of a penalty, but she has threatened to charge parents with educational neglect who send their kids to certain schools for the fact that they're not receiving a basic education. Um, to me, that seemed like the most ridiculous thing, because it's the parents that are actually the ones blowing the whistle. And the parents also don't want to leave necessarily these schools. It's, it, they love the schools and you know they may have been in that in that sect or in that you know school in their family for generations. They just want their children to get a sound basic education and to get some job skills and to understand the world around them. As usual the commissioner you know has us scratching our heads, but in the legislation that did finally get passed after Synkofelder held everything up at the zero hour, it did give some fuzzy kind of new language to yeshivas to be able to, I guess, make make their case to the commissioner that their religious education is in some way some kind of whole holistic approach to education. Were you following that?
1: I was following it, and I'm still following it. So for the most part, that was basically giving non-public schools ice in the winter they already had the ability if ever went that far in in the investigation Mm -hmm. to actually make a case how to evaluate their curriculum right so this was so informally this is something that they could have made an argument about
2: Mm -hmm.
1: so saying that this is what the commissioner now needs to take under consideration wasn't really giving that much. That was a lot of window dressing. And what happened was in the language that got drafted in the middle of the budget crisis back in April, caused by Senator Felder's opposition to the budget and his advocacy on this issue, they actually gave the state commissioner power for the first time yep. to directly have oversight
0: yeah, to determine-
1: over non public. Education. So in the very process of Senator Felder trying to minimize or remove state education oversight over non-public schools, he actually strengthened the hand right. of the state commissioner. In New York City, I don't know if that was much of a nuanced change, but there is a substantial issue in Orange and Rockland counties mm-hmm. where district superintendents will not conduct an investigation and would never give a referral to the state commissioner. Right, so what Senator Felder did actually dramatically strengthened the hand of state education to school districts within those two counties.
0: Yes, right. As, a, as I saw it, it made clear that the final arbiter of substantial equivalence would be the commissioner. And it seems like the whole thing was a big backfire. Simke Felder felt like he was going to make his play and use his one, you know, very important tie-breaking vote to try to get something and I think the added media attention that it got this time around uh, because it was so unprecedented really caused maybe like 24 hours of, cons- of panic or something and then he came out with zero you know except maybe you know some vague language that he can try to hang his hat on and say that he got something although I think we both agree it was nothing it was even worse than before exactly
1: <laughs> now you're not you're not in the 17th Senate District so within Borough Park, the public mm-hmm. actually has a sentiment that they think they actually got something okay. they a- that they actually received. I don't like to use the word benefit because mm-hmm. I don't think this was this whole process is not about benefit, right? But they certainly thought that they got something more, right, than what they actually gotten, they actually received. And the reality as exactly what you're saying is they actually created, this legislation actually created more supervision by, from the state commissioner than they've ever had in the history of the state.
0: Right, and you know, the commissioner is, because East Ramapo was a special case and the, the controversy of the hostile school board takeover, she has been inserted there as the next level of oversight above the school chancellor in conjunction with the with the appointed monitors. But now it, this would also extend that to every non-public school in the state. And, you know, that might even bring some scrutiny to Catholic schools or other schools that haven't really had complaints about their academics if you're afraid of big government. And when you compound that with the proposals that came after in Majority Leader Flanagan's bills, which did not pass, but they would have given Simka their pretty much everything he wanted, correct?
1: Right, that is correct. Actually, I don't think the people in the state realize how close we were to a complete change in how we manage or supervise state education. But luckily that bill did not pass.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it was was also interesting the way Flanagan put in these real... Enticers for the teachers' union, um, you know, his bill would have completely repealed the evaluation law that they hate so much, and they still didn't go for it. You know, I think the combination of the concessions to the yeshivas, or or to the non-compliant yeshivas, I should say, and the increase in charter schools was just a poison pill. And the session ended with no further action. It must be very interesting for you to be right in the middle of all that. And, you know, what are the other voters in the district saying, the ones that typically send their kids to public schools? Are they getting more and more aware of this? And and does it seem like it's getting very fractionated there?
1: Actually, they say a lot about this. And there is two distinct branches of concern. So one branch of concern is that many people uh, within Borough Park and Midwood and outside of Borough Park and Midwood are concerned that students are not receiving a quality education.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so they're not being prepared to live their lives as adults being uh, productive citizens.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's the concern. So one is the concern for the child, right. to, uh, at, which at some point will graduate and become an adult and have, and have to take their place in society. The second concern has to deal with the distribution of public money in public schools with something of budgetary math I'm not fully knowledgeable of. It's a little bit murky, mm-hmm. but somehow the money that goes to non-public schools gets distributed through subdivisions within New York City of of the actual administrative school districts. hmm so that if you have a an area in New York City that has lots of non-public schools that are receiving money somehow that affects the budget of the public schools in that same area.
0: Right. Well, yeah, and so there there the argument is is you're um setting up a competition for resources and that that was one of the big issues when they proposed the education tax credit which some people call the backdoor voucher for that to come here to New York, you know, would have been kind of like a seismic shift. I'm not too in tune with the the sentiment of the other contingent in your district, and it should be very interesting to see how it all plays out. You know, as these, I I guess you would have to say the as these two worlds collide. Well, I
1: like to say, you know, reporters ask that question all the time. Mm-hmm. Is this is this actually two worlds colliding? Right and my and, I, and and my response is always that it doesn't have to be two worlds colliding. We could just enforce the law the way it currently exists,
2: mm-hmm.
1: where non public schools could provide the minimal educational standards when I talk to parents of yeshiva students, not one of those parents and I sure, i mean they're out there. I just have not met them yet, uh-huh. but I meet parents of uh, yeshiva students who say. They send their child to a school that does satisfy minimal educational standards. Right. That they would never send their kid to that type of yeshiva. And they want other parents, who they don't know who they are. I was asked, well, do you know these parents? And they say, no, we don't know these people. Right. They want the right for other parents to send their kids to a yeshiva that does not provide the minimal educational standards and then i inquire i ask them is it okay if those parents send their kids to school where they're not learning how to read and write and do arithmetic and so the same people who said i want parents to have a right a right to send their kids to school that doesn't have minimal educational standards at the same time they say no it's not right we want those kids to actually be able to read and write and do arithmetic right then i asked them so what is this what is this conflict over then? if you're you know if you're saying of the mythical parent that wants to send their kids to a school that doesn't teach these things, but then when it's broken down to the actual classes that you want them or don't want them to um, attend, you actually do want them to attend right And so where their conversation turns to is that they don't have a problem with the reading and the writing and the arithmetic. they have a problem with the other parts of the minimal educational um, standards.
0: Is, is that like the religious instruction and the Talmudic studies and the...
1: Well, no, I'm talking about the, the public, the secular education. Oh, the secular part, right. Right, the secular part. They're not very specific about which parts, you know, because yeah. once, once it's broken down to which part about why they're against reading and writing and arithmetic, they really don't have much to say. There, I mean, there is some conflict here. I think in here, there, I think there could be a resolution. If people well, I mean, are actually talking, if people are, are actually have a good faith effort mm-hmm. in discussion, mm-hmm. I think we can have a meeting of the minds.
0: I hope so. I mean, you know, to me, it seems like one of these things where it might be generational, and maybe you know, the older, stodgy leadership, you know, likes things the traditional way that they've always done, because this has oh, this has gone under the radar. This really has gone under the radar. Previous administrations and what have you. You know, now it's finally coming out. You know, it took some of the students within those schools to blow the whistle and to, to graduate and then try to go out and negotiate the real world and have trouble. And, and so, uh, you know, I really commend... Uh, Naftali moster, and I really you know i I think he's doing something for for a huge amount of kids, mostly boys, that are getting deprived of something that would make school a lot more valuable, a lot more interesting, a lot more bearable. And, you know, it it would make it a lot less frustrating, you know, for later on. You know, I really feel for these kids. You know, I'm an art teacher. So, you know, I have to fight in the Bronx. I have to fight for schools to get their art and, and, and to have exposure. You know, sometimes it's music or theater or dance, but, you know, visual art too. And so, you know, I can't imagine what these kids are like when they have absolutely no secular study whatsoever. And that, you know, there's just hours upon hours of this... You know, religious, concentrated religious study. That you know, it must be impossible for a modern kid in the modern world. You know, to uh, to negotiate. So, I hope that there is a, a a way out here. And to me, it seems like the yeshivas that are out of compliance. Sorry, time's up. You know, um, you got away for away with it for this long, but but please give these kids a basic education as prescribed by law, and then. I'm sure the friction would smooth out a lot quicker.
1: And you know what's really interesting is that Senator Felder, for a long time, has been saying – well, actually, we know how long, six years Uh – has been saying that he represents his community. Right. But he never defines what his community is. So in the July state campaign finance report – Mm-hmm. We finally got to see who his campaign contributors are, because normally he raises no money at all. Right, and he raised and he raised over four hundred and thirty thousand dollars in about sixty days.
0: Wow. Yeah, this is a, all but, starting to come last minute, right?
1: Yes, yes. Well, I guess friends indeed. Um, right. Friends indeed. Friends in need. So, but what's interesting is he had no small donors oh. to his campaign. Really. So when he talks about his community his community should be represented in the type of the people who would donate right. to his campaign and, and what you find is there are no small donors instead what's there are special interests with bloated yeah. uh, state contracts like nursing homes
2: mm-hmm.
1: and school bus companies with um, oh, yeah. with with state contracts oh yeah you find John Flanagan, the leader of the Senate. Oh, boy. Um, you, find the, you find Rebney, the real estate board of New York.
0: Wow.
1: Um, you find Century 21 department stores. Okay. But what you don't find are right. parents.
0: Everyday people.
1: Of yeshiva students. Right. So the people, who, the people he, who might be, who should be saying, oh, I need this change in the law, or the law needs to be changed because I'm suffering a hardship or it's a cultural intrusion into my, I mean, well, yeah. state involvement is a cultural intrusion right. into my life or into my community's life.
0: My religion. That
1: Right, into in the religious life. They're not there. There is no, <laughs> they just do not, they do not exist as right. a campaign donor.
0: Right, yeah, I mean, we have that dynamic here in Rockland County where Julie Goldberg is running against David Carlucci, he always claims to be a man of the people, but his average donation is. Eight hundred and thirty-two dollars. So I don't know anybody that can just like snap off a check for eight hundred and thirty-two dollars for a campaign. These are big businesses, and you know it's also the real estate, and it's also the charter school packs. We we're we here in this district. We're running a, a school teacher, Julie Goldberg, is somebody that that had enough with the IDC and stood up and is doing what you're doing, disrupting their life and their family's life, and running in a very high-profile way to uh, to correct some of these problems
1: no which is a very good thing and someone needs to stand up senator felder after he was elected in 2012 in the new 17th senate district that was just recently created it was the day after the election that he said he was going to conference with the republicans and put them in control
0: right that the old switcheroo as soon right. as it's...
1: i thought someone to run against him in 2014 and no one did mm-hmm. and i thought someone to run against him in 2016 And no one did. And then in 2017, when I was talking to elected Democrats in Brooklyn, Kings County, they didn't see a problem. They thought the status quo was okay.
0: Really?
1: They thought that disturbing the 17th Senate District would create problems that were unimaginable. That whatever issue I had concerns about would be a lot worse if we had disturbed the status quo. And so eventually, I had to run myself as a candidate, and now now I'm on the ballot. You know, I had to face, I don't know if you were following it, but I had to face a court challenge two weeks ago. Really? By Senator Felder, who wanted to kick me off the ballot because he didn't like my name.
0: He didn't like your name.
1: Exactly. I had a five-hour trial. (laughs) Really? Over my name. I did not know this. The court issued a ten-page court decision. Wow. um, In my Ten pages? That's, that's uh, in your my tax favor. Does it work, huh? A lot of words in my favor, because uh, I was well within my rights under the under state law. And basically, to paraphrase the judge, I basically could have been Bubbles Morris beyond the ballot instead of Blake Morris, and that would have been totally okay.
0: You know, we see the same thing now with some of the other IDC challengers. I mean, you know, as usual in the campaigns, it gets ugly and. You know, the truth goes out the window. Uh, you see these mailers with these incredible claims on it. And it takes very rapid response to to try and get those things, t- to get the truth out there. And, uh, you know, sometimes they backfire. That's politics. I mean, you know, I imagine it's it's only going to get more hairy from here on out. You know, I really appreciate what you're doing. I spoke to Julie Goldberg a little bit uh, before this uh, interview. She wanted me to say hi. She says that she's been a supporter of yours even before she announced her candidacy. She she made a donation as soon as she heard there was somebody running and she really appreciates you as well. She, it was, you know, an interesting conversation because we are doing, you know, there are going to be the education endorsements coming out and Julie is a teacher and you and I had a very interesting discussion about that as well. But um, the other interesting issue that we asked you about was the uh, standardized testing. I thought it was interesting when you told me that your wife was in the education world because the new Democratic governor of Virginia, uh, Ralph Northam, he did something pretty interesting when it came time to select his secretary of education. That's what they call it in Virginia. He selected a classroom teacher, an active everyday teacher, like a middle school civics and, I, I believe, economics teacher. I mean, this was a qualified guy. He had actually run for office. But, you know, it was an actual teacher, and he put him in charge of the state education department, and he quickly made an announcement saying that what he wanted to do would be to reduce standardized testing to the federally mandated minimums. And so that came to mind when you were giving me your answer, because it was basically the same. You said that in regard to the standardized testing, the math in ELA, that every third to eighth grade student has to go through every single year, that you felt on the state level, there's no need for anything extra. The federal mandate is already, you know, brutal enough as it is. It's already four days out of the schedule, plus all the days for prep. Is this a product of being in an educator family, because... It turns out that the the governor of Virginia, his wife is a teacher. His wife is like a lifelong teacher, and so it seems to me that running for office and being connected, or being a teacher family, you know, really could make a difference in the lives of these kids.
1: Oh well, I I definitely think so. I think if the people with more experience, or at least the ability to have daily conversations or be connected with people who are in education so that they can see the impact of standardized testing in a way that actually affects the classroom, that actually affects the student also having a child in a public school and seeing how standardized testing affects your own child. It really is standardized testing is just a program. That's what it really is, isn't it?
0: It's gotten ridiculous. There's an outside vendor. they do, They spend millions of dollars to develop these tests that are like, you know, psychometrically analyzed every way to Sunday. And then these kids are given the tests, and we don't even get the tests during the same school year. And they say this year, because the testing went from six days to four days, that there's an even greater delay. We're not going to get the test scores. Usually we have them by now. We're not going to get them till late September, they say. So, you know, if any school was actually using them for diagnostically, they can't use them. You cannot, you know, make your classrooms. You cannot level up your classes, you know, based on how many twos and threes you have in math. You have to do it all using other, other methods now because the tests are completely worthless. And, I mean, the teachers are back to school uh, tomorrow. And this is what we were dealing with last week when, when we went in. We didn't have the test data. Assuming the administrators wanted to use it in the first place really makes you wonder, who is this benefiting and, and so, you know, with that, what is your position on the parents around the state who want the right to opt out of standardized testing?
1: I think they should have the right to opt out. And what I would like to see is basically the entire state. I mean, exactly what they did in Virginia, I would like to see the entire state change our protocols and that we'll only do the minimally required federal testing.
0: Right. I agree. Uh, you know, from your mouth to God's ears, I, I, I hope, you know, that we have a real progressive wave coming in and that some of these changes can get made. I know that uh, Christine Pellegrino won last year in a special election. She was a classroom teacher that is now sitting in the assembly. And Ellen Jaffe is another former teacher. Yeah, so there there are a few, but very few candidates for elected office will go on the record against standardized testing. Oh. Really,
1: is that is that true? Are most candid or most elected officials or candidates
0: yeah. not
1: yeah. not this clear about about standardized testing?
0: Well, it's something that that they've been very very hard to get on the record about. And I'm going back years now. I mean, somebody like Kirsten Gillibrand or Chuck Schumer, they there is nothing there when it comes to opt out standardized testing. And the reason why is because if you're for the standardized testing, then you usually say it. But if you're against it they don't say anything because there's concentrated money that go into these packs that will spend against you if you if you stick your neck out. And so very few have actually gone on the record. I know Zephyr Teachout has uh, not only now but in her 2014 run. George Latimer was uh, a state senator that was that was outspoken uh, in favor of the parents having the right to opt out if they wanted. And in New York City you have uh Daniel Drum, he's uh, a city council member that used to be a teacher. And he actually has his own local organization in Queens that encourages parents to opt out of the test. He's completely against them. These names are few and far between. So we really appreciate when another candidate is willing to take a strong position and run on it because... You know, every district has their opt-out rate, and so you can see how many parents in your district, once they finally publish them, and that'll be late in September, you'll, you'll be able to find out how many opt-out parents are in your district. Statewide, it's about 20%, but out on Long Island, it's more like 50%. And certain districts have as high as 80% out in Long Island, where the real...
1: Right, I know in Westchester County, and, Scar- and I think in Scarsdale, they have, a very, have an extremely high um, opt-out rate.
0: Um, Yeah, in Westchester, it's not Scarsdale. I think it might be one of those neighboring um, oh, that, a- districts like Pleasantville or Chappaqua, but, because my wife teaches in Scarsdale, but it's a little bit higher than the state average in Westchester. Here in Rockland, it's a little bit higher. It's about 25%, depending on the district. Every district has its own reporting. But the real interesting places are Long Island, where it's extremely high, and then the New York City, where it's extremely low. And, you know, that's because the teachers' union in the city is not on board. They have really stood down against the tests, whereas the state union, it, they go ahead and fund billboards telling parents that they have the right to opt out. So that's that's another example with this real big divide between the state and the city teachers' unions. If you ask an, uh, an everyday rank-and-file teacher, they'll tell you that they don't support the test because, you know, we're the ones that have to administer the tests, and we're the ones that see the kids crying and chewing off their fingernails and, and what have you. It's definitely a political position that the UFT has struck. I'm not sure exactly what the teachers get in return, but it, you know the opt-out rate in New York City is very, very low. And this is going to be a pretty big matter because Betsy DeVos, believe it or not, has instructed New York State to punish districts that have high opt-out rates. That policy proposal is being voted on in just a few days. I, September, there's a, a Board of Regents vote. They're going to vote on a proposal that would make schools that have opt out rates over 5%, which would be 90% of the schools in the state. They would have to spend their own resources trying to get parents to opt in. And if they don't fix the problem, they're going to lose Title 1 funding, which is meant for kids that are in poverty that, you know, that's your extra help and your after school clubs and your, you know, enrichment courses. That they have to waste that like on somehow figuring out how to get parents to take the test. And if that still doesn't work uh, in in the out years, the policy would give the commissioner the right to close the school or, if you can believe it, to turn it into a charter school. The next Board of Regents meeting that most people don't even know about, and you know, a lot of this stuff is. Yeah,
1: just... I've not seen any. I like to think, I like to consider myself a news junkie. Right. And I have not seen any reporting on this.
0: Well, that's why I do this podcast, because, <laughs> you know, You're the doing news... you a public service. Yeah, the, the education does not make it into the news. You know, I don't know if it's too technical or too boring or whatever, but, you know, these are the things that, if you have a kid in school, you know, you'd, you'd like to know that there's a meeting coming up, because, the, you know, the Board of Regents are not elected officials. They're appointed... They're appointed by election officials. Uh, They're actually appointed by the assembly. And, you know, people don't know how any of this stuff works. It took me quite a while to, to get up to speed myself. And so, you know, it's interesting this year that we're having a little more bit deeper discussions on the education issues like funding, like the yeshivas and the charter schools. So really appreciate you taking the time to call in today.
1: No, no problem. It's my pleasure, and you are a very well-informed host.
0: Thanks. Yeah, sometimes we sometimes we inform and educate, and other times talk directly to candidates and um, go over the issues so that you know they see from the statewide perspective, not just their their own district. Um, you know what's happening with some of these policies. Yes, very good. <laughs> yeah, it's um, a
1: pleasure. Hopefully, hopefully, I can come back onto the podcast uh,
0: as a voice of reason uh, from a district where. Uh, you know, there's a lot of controversy. We do cover the yeshiva issue here uh, ever since we started uh, this podcast. We we do want to keep an eye on it. Very good. All right, so uh, thanks so much, and best of luck with everything. Take care. All right, take care. That was Blake Morris running for uh, state senate in the very controversial state senate district where Simca fell there. Sometimes they call it the super Jewish district because it was gerrymandered. Uh, in such a way that there is a very, very high concentration of Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox communities there. And, um, you know, so much so that it might even ensure that Simkefelder Felder wins no matter what happens. But we hope that Blake Morris wins because he's a public school parent. You heard him there coming out against charter schools, coming out against the standardized testing coming out in favor of the opt-out parents. Music to our ears. We really love it. We want to thank Richard here at Rockland World Radio for hosting us as usual. We might go over the Julie Goldberg slash David Carlucci debate, but that remains to be seen. We'll catch you next time. Um, school will be in session. Oh, there's a debate in Nyack Center on this Thursday at 7 o'clock. Oh, was this just announced? Breaking news, breaking news. So this is going to be Carlucci and Goldberg round two. right. Oh, okay. 7 o'clock Thursday in the NYX Center. Thank you so much, Richard. I did not know that. So tune in, and we'll have a lot to talk about about the debate. Here we are signing off from Rockland Center, New York. Take care. It's not just radio. It's Rockland World Radio. Radio. Mm -hmm. Radio. Mm -hmm. RocklandWorldRadio.com